Come with me as we step into the WM Today podcast time machine and go back to the prehistoric days of wealth management technology. What was the first portfolio accounting software to run on a PC? And who were the founders and how did they get started? And how does Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak fit into all this? You'll find out soon on this episode of Wealth Management Today. This episode of Wealth Management Today is brought to you by Ezra Group Consulting. Broker-dealers are under tremendous pressure to retain and attract new advisors, and their technology ecosystem is a key part. Ezra Group Consulting is your go-to source for building the next generation of advisor and client experiences that will supercharge your firm's growth, increase user satisfaction, and reduce operating costs. If you're a broker-dealer and you want to leapfrog your competition, contact Ezra Group today for a free one-hour consultation and 10% off your first strategic planning project. Go to ezragroup.co, that's E-Z-R-A, G-R-O-U-P dot C-O for more information. Hello out there, everyone in the wealth tech world. Welcome to another episode of the Wealth Management Today podcast. My name is Craig Eskowitz, and I'm a strategy consultant helping wealth management firms make better technology decisions. Here on my podcast, I bring you new ideas from people who are on the leading edge of technology and innovation. This is the Winners of Wealth Tech series, which is a special series where I interview leaders of the industry and disassemble their habits and traits, those that enable them to achieve their levels of success, as well as extract nuggets of wisdom and best practices that they can share with you. I was really excited for this episode. I've been in the industry a long time, and I remember Advent Software. One of the first projects I did as a consultant was helping asset managers set up, manage, uh, and configure Advent Software, Advent Access, one of the first PC-based portfolio accounting applications, and Steve was one of the founders. And we really geeked out on this podcast, talking about the history of technology, especially PCs and wealth management, going way back, and uh, really commiserating about how things were and how things have changed. Uh, and you really learn the details about how Access was founded and uh, you know all the, the origins and how it grew and expanded and really how it came to be the you know, the bellwether of portfolio accounting software today, the precursor to almost every portfolio accounting engine that exists today. Excellent interview. I was really happy that Steve was able to make the time to speak to me, and you are really going to enjoy this episode. So let's get started. And I'd like to welcome to the Winners of Wealth Tech podcast, Steve Strand, the co-founder of Advent Software. Steve, welcome. I'm glad to be here. I'm really excited for this interview. I'm so happy you uh, were available to talk. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, our mutual friend, Ryan Carey, the CEO of AccuSource, was able to connect us. And one of the things I've been really interested in talking to you about, Steve, being the co-founder of Advent Software and Advent Software being one of the first portfolio management tools and and having such a great history and, and being such a big part of the industry, I was really wondering how you know it got started going back in time. You know, how did you you meet Stephanie DeMarco, the other you know the co-founder, and how did you get from uh, an electrical engineering degree at Berkeley into starting a portfolio management software company? 
Oh, well, I was a student at Berkeley. Be before I graduated, I needed a part-time job. In those days, the uh, the inter you know the World Wide Web wasn't invented yet. This this would be in the late seventies. So I went to the student job placement center at Berkeley, where people would phone in their uh, jobs and they would type it up on three by five cards and put it on the bulletin board. I knew how to program because I had a personal interest in it, but I didn't have any paid experience as a programmer. But I looked at the programming jobs at the student job placement center, and there's one for Sonnet Optical. So I went there because they were the highest pay per hour. But it turns out it was a typo. It was actually Summit Options. <laughs> I didn't know anything about. I didn't know anything about options or finance. And they were at first not going to hire me because I didn't have paid programming mm. experience. They really wanted somebody paid. But they showed me the Black Scholes uh, option valuation formula, mm -hmm. and um, I was actually a physics major for four years. I switched to EE at the very end because I decided I didn't want to get a PhD and I didn't want to be in school forever. I wanted to go out in the world and do real things. But anyway. I knew the heat equation really well and partial differential equations really well. And I recognized the Black-Scholes equation as being you know, quite a lot like the heat equation. So they were impressed that I knew the math and they sort of huddled and said, holy cow, instead of hiring someone who knows how to program and teaching them the math, maybe it's reasonable to do it the other way around, hire somebody who knows the math and then they can learn how to program. So anyway, they wow. hired me. And uh, as it turns out, I knew how to program too. Their, their <laughs> fear I didn't have paid experience right. was fault, the fault fear. So <clears throat> my job for them was to, um, they had a seat on the options exchange and I would have my computer suck in option quotes and find under and overvalued options, try to put together a delta neutral portfolio that, uh, you know, of course goes long undervalued options and short overvalued options. So Steve, Except for you to Marco, what yeah. was the, what was the computer system? You know, I'm, you know, I have a computer science degree as well. So I'm, I'm going to geek out here a little bit. What computer were you writing this code on? Uh, it was a, it was a PDP-11, I believe, but we were running this operating system called TSX, which is, uh, I think, proprietary to DAC. I mean, it's so long ago, I'm forgetting all the, I'm forgetting all the details. But yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely digital equipment uh, stuff. And then I think TSX, there was a multi-user version called RSX. I've done, I've dealt with so many operating systems that I start to forget. Oh, I'm sure. Every, every detail of ones from I was just curious. Know, 40 years ago. And that story where you, you applied to Summit Optical and it was actually Summit Options is, is too funny. Yeah, it's very weird. So my uh, introduction to finance was absolutely accidental. But imagine but if it was actually an optical company that you had gone to. You may have been in a whole different industry. Yes, that's right. So, so, so we, have, we, have, we have a typo to thank for Advent Software. Yes. Well, now, an, a very key thing was that Stephanie DeMarco also worked there. She was the uh, accountant, controller uh, type type of person. So I got to know Stephanie at that at Summit Options. Now, it turns out that Summit Options went spectacularly broke. As a options market maker, they have to meet zone requirements. The market makers are there supposedly to serve the public, not themselves. And so they have to trade options in different categories to show that they're not just concentrating on what they care about. And to meet zone requirements, they would sell garbage options. That's options way out of the money with like one or two days to go. Mm -hmm. Figure, uh, you know, there's not a chance in heck those options are going to be in the money. And uh, I'm pleased they, they bought uh, Canicot Copper options and it was taken over by Exxon the next day. Ah. And suddenly they lost millions of dollars <laughs> and they went 
they went they went bankrupt. Wow. And I I, I stress that my program, which was largely constructing their portfolio, mm-hmm. did not recommend those options. Which, uh, <laughs> yes, let's let's be clear that your program did not yeah. recommend those options. Absolutely. So then uh, the competitors swept in to pick up the key personnel, and uh, some people wanted to hire me. I became a contract programmer, and uh, after a while, I wrote this uh, commodities trading program for somebody, that, and it uh, had a lot of risk assessment stuff in it. And, you know, I'm a student programmer, so, you know, I'm just, I don't know what I'm getting paid. I'm getting paid 10 or $12 an hour, something minimal. And I work on this program for a month. So, you know, who knows? I got paid a couple thousand bucks for writing this program. But then it comes to my attention that they're selling copies of it for 50000 apiece. And that uh-huh. created a burning desire in me. I've got to own what I create. I mean, it's perfectly legitimate for them to be selling it because, you know, right. I, mean, I, I, was, I was a contract programmer. That, that, was, that was the contract. But I really wanted to own what I created. But it was hard to make the transition because I don't have enough capital to, you know, don't get paid for a year while I, while I write something. <clears throat> well, meanwhile, uh, Stephanie DeMarco had gone to this all-woman firm in Marin County. That's, uh, you know, across the bay from Berkeley. The firm that Stephanie worked for catered to women who weren't used to handling finance, but because their husband died or because they got divorced, suddenly they're, you know, they have to manage money and they don't know how to do it. So it was like women helping women. That was a big thing for them. So they hired me to do some programming for them, but I had to hide the fact I worked for them because, I, you know, as a male, I didn't, didn't, didn't fit the pattern. I remember they had a neck spin writer as their printer. This has a daisy wheel, you know, that spins around and little hammers hit it into a carbon ribbon like an Nikon's electric. And when they did reports, the printer would go chunk, 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 and it would take a couple minutes to print a page. So I uh, wrote some software to produce a report, and then it's time to demo it, and I pressed the go button. And the printer makes this screaming noise they had never heard. You know, it was just going, and they thought I'd broken the printer, you know, and they're like, uh. but then the report, the report comes out like in 10 seconds and they were amazed. And initially that's all they wanted me to do is that one thing. But then they said, well, could you make this thing over here faster too? You know, could you do this? You know, they keep asking <laughs> what else can you do? And everything, every, everything they asked me, you know, I can do it. So I ended up working there for two years and, uh, it was very funny because if I'm downstairs uh, chatting with my coworkers and a client comes in, I have to like grab the water bottle and bake like I'm changing, you know, I'm delivering the water or something because mm-hmm. I had to uh, uh, disguise my male presence at this all-female firm. Well, Stephanie and I both really wanted to start a business and a big break came when Stephanie's then boyfriend found an angel investor, Bob Leppo. When was the, this? Uh, this would be 1983. And the IBM PC had just come out. And Stephanie and I had discussed a lot how PCs would probably be much better for people than using a timeshare. And uh, I knew all about the IBM PC because actually I built a homebrew computer. I joined the Homebrew Computer Club. I met Stephen Wozniak at the Homebrew Computer Club when he was nobody. You know, Apple hasn't happened yet. But, uh, so, awesome. uh, you know, what was that like? Yeah. Uh, that was pretty interesting. I, I also met Stephen Wozniak 
due to phone freaking. It turns out that the Berkeley EE department was a nest of phone freaking. That's right. Uh, you, could, you could build these things called the blue box where you could take over the phone system. There was a huge security problem in the early uh, phone system. And Stephen Wozniak was building and selling blue boxes. I often hear people talk about how they finance Apple by selling a van or a TI calculator or something, but that's that's wrong. They financed Apple by selling blue boxes. Yeah, that's so, uh, the, the, that's the, the Steve, uh, the Jobs and Wozniak were doing blue boxes. Yeah. So I went to some demonstrations of blue boxing as a wide-eyed freshman. You know, amazed at all the things happening at the university and all the interesting all the interesting people here. But I understood PCs pretty well and was sure I could write a program for PCs that would satisfy the typical Amolish uh, money managers. So mm -hmm. when Stephanie found the angel investor, Bob Lepo, we quit our jobs and I worked for nine months writing the first version of what was then called the professional portfolio. We didn't have enough money to advertise, but we got listed in some directories and some PC magazines where you get listed for free. And there was this lady in Texas named Sarah Hall, absolutely hated her timeshare service. I think it was, I think it was Shaw Data. And she saw our ad, and I think we charged two thousand dollars or something in those days. It wasn't a whole lot. And she sure. paid like two thousand a month to, right. to, to Shaw to Shaw Data. And she hated them so much. She later told us that she figured there's only about a 10% chance our software would work, <laughs> but she she was willing to gamble on various things that could bump off uh, Shaw Data. And so she bought our software. She was the first one. And uh, she never had a demo or anything. She just saw the directory listing and you know, sends us a check and says, send us the software. I remember staying up all night a couple of nights to get a manual together because we didn't have a we didn't have proper documentation. Sure, so printing. You know, I'm I'm writing document pages and printing it on our dot matrix printer and you know punching it and putting it in a three ring binder and we send it off. And to Sarah so, Hall's so amazement, in Mexico, yeah, uh, Texas. I think it was uh, Houston, Texas. Well, I'm, I'm not sure what city. It was definitely in Texas. I think it was Houston. Houston. Somebody yeah. we never met. We never right. met, and they and, and we never gave a demo. Just somebody sent a check saying, you know, send us your software. So, uh, uh, it was some, yeah, some PC magazine that where they had listings of vendors, but yeah, I, I do that. know we didn't, we didn't have to pay. Cause like I say, we couldn't, we're really, we're really tight on money. Hmm. Uh, so that was a PC based so, uh, version. Uh, totally. This ran on IBM PCs. So it was an so, IBM PC. It's the, well, that's the original 4.77 megahertz. You put it on floppies. How, how big is this? Was this that's right. That's right. Um, our, in fact, our demo had to run on a single floppy because yeah. most people didn't have hard disk. We told right. people, if you're going to actually use it, you have to buy a hard disk, you know, <laughs> serious professional use. That mm -hmm. would be a 10 megabyte hard disk. That's mm -hmm. the biggest you would get. And the program had to run in 640K of memory because that's all the memory you could put in the first... Uh, IBM PCs, so yeah, very uh, very tight compute environment compared to what we have today. Yes, you mailed her a, a single floppy disk with a manual. That's right, mailed her, mailed her a floppy disk and a manual, and to her surprise, it worked. <laughs> she put it in because how much QA did you do on that? How much testing did you do on that software? Well, I test constantly as I'm coding every you know every half page of code. You know, I'll just 
run. Um, I'm sure people that are in the testing business would be appalled that I didn't use a testing framework and I didn't do it how you know you should do it, and I couldn't tell you what my percentage of code coverage was. But you know, I'm pretty pretty careful. I, actually, I'm really uh, kind of mathematical in my background, and I constantly try to prove my code is correct. I'm always thinking about invariance, identifying the invariance, and then proving the invariance are true. You can't actually prove code is correct in the mathematical sense, but you can go further than most people do, and it, I find it is beneficial to go as far as you can trying to prove your code is correct. Program apparently didn't have any errors in it, and she never, she never uh, found any. But she bragged all her friends about how she was able to fire hated timeshare company. And so her friends started sending us checks. So it was exponential. We, we just started having massive growth real early on by word of mouth. We put a map up on the wall mm -hmm. and we'd stick a pin in it when we got a customer. And first we have a cluster of pins in, uh, I believe it was Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. Then one of those people brags to somebody who lives in Chicago. So we get a single pin in Chicago. And then within a few weeks, we'd have a whole cluster of pins in Chicago because whoever got the software would then, you know, brag to their friends about it and they'd all start buying it. Then somebody would, you know, have a friend in another city. So we started, you know, it's like the spread of an infectious disease or something. So, so, it was, it was, so the first Sarah Hall in Houston, what kind of firm did she run? She was a, a money manager. Uh, I don't know how big her business was. Uh, you know, I get the feeling there were like 10, 10 people or something and uh, you know, just catered to, to, to wealthy families. So yes. what was the first version called? The professional portfolio. The deal was I would name the company and Stephanie would name the product. So she wanted it to be the professional portfolio. Even before we got together, she had it in her mind to have a, a something called the professional portfolio. Uh, I looked. I didn't want to name our company something like Superior Software, or Wonderful mm -hmm. Software. Right. You know, that's just that's just too obvious. But I wanted a word that had pleasant associations. So I found this whole cluster of pleasant words: uh, advanced, advantageous, adventurous. You know, all these ADV words that had pleasant connotations, and there were no bad ADV words. So I decided to call it um, Advent. Advent Software, based on the Pleasant associations. Now, I did not understand that this was a uh, season in the liturgical calendar. <laughs> yeah. And uh, later on, uh, when I found that out, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this could be a mistake. Maybe I will offend, uh, you know, really uh, devout religious people. But it turned out it was wonderful because people who aren't super religious don't know or care and people who are super religious would go oh, wink wink you're one of us wonderful we're going to buy for you for sure. <laughs> so, uh, so, so it was all around good uh good name choice for the company your marketing uh, your marketing instincts were correct yes although i don't again it could just be blundering luck rather than good instincts but i won't Sometimes answer that the same yes Yes. Oh, so, so you uh, got your first sales. Did you raise the price? Was it always two thousand each? Oh yeah, that? yeah, yeah. We 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 started raising the price, and then we started having a maintenance contract to get to get recurring revenue. And then we had uh, some years of crazy growth, and the problem was always finding people and hiring people. We had good cash flow, so we weren't capital constrained. But just it's hard to find and train 
uh, good people. So we kept moving to a bigger office and then another bigger office and our headcount kept going up. Oh, well, one thing I forgot to ask, what was the language you programmed in originally, the, the professional? Uh, C. Uh, C, the C language. Now, that, that's actually a funny one. When I went to uh, the all-woman firm that Stephanie worked at, I, I didn't know C. I knew Pascal and Fortran and BASIC. Sure. But I, I had heard that C was the cool language, especially at Berkeley. Uh, all the high-level people there use C. So I said, oh, boy, I, I've got to learn C. So I told the uh, all-woman firm, buy a C compiler. I'll do it all in C. And they took that to mean that was my preferred environment, but actually I, did, I didn't know it. <laughs> but I learned it on I learned it on the job, and I completed the first task, uh, you know, in under time and under budget. So, you know, it was no uh, no problem for them that I was learning C on the job, but I learned uh, learned C on on the job, and I liked it. It gave me better control of the machine. Sure. Uh, of course, in later years, I, I switched to C++, but it wasn't invented yet, so it yeah. had to be C. So you after so at what point? So 1983 was when the the, the professional uh, Advent was founded, and uh, was it 84 where you shipped the first version, and then uh, de de December, December, I believe it was March 1983 when I, Stephanie and I both quit our job. Then I went into seclusion for nine months in the spare bedroom of my house and cooked up that first version. And then we shipped it in December 1983. So it's about a nine-month period to write the first version. Now, this version is very minimal by today's standards. There's no graphical user interface. It's a DOS-based system. Of course. It, yeah. gives, you, it gives you a text-based menu, you know, one, two, three, four, and then you push the number of what you want, and then you get another text-based menu, and you press one, two, three, four. So uh, no user interface, uh, you know, like a like a normal program. And the code was very small. You know, it was probably, you know, sixty thousand lines or something. And holy cow, it's running in six hundred and forty k of memory. It exactly. can't be a big, big giant program. But it did what people needed. Well, you know what Steve? You know what uh, Bill Gates said? He said he doesn't see why anyone would need more than six hundred and forty k of memory. That's right. <laughs> I bet I I bet he's pretty. Uh, Embarrassed by that now, but not anymore. But he probably was. Yeah. So, what year did you start running into problems, or what was the next milestone year? Hmm. Well, the next few years were incredibly fun. Uh, the whole Advent team was really good people, and we were all really excited by what we're doing. And I made you know great lifelong friendships there. We had this virtuous cycle going because the product was pretty solid. It didn't have bugs. And it was it was sort of like a tool set. It was quite flexible. So the customer support people had a lot of power. And if somebody had a problem, they could generally set things up to help them. So that makes the customer support people stay a long time. Some customer support people are just cannon fodder. They're just being put out there to listen to people abuse them and complain. And they really can't do anything about it. So you get a lot of turnover in customer support. But our customer support people would stay and they'd get really good at it and they'd like their job because the software was good and they got to really help people and people were really thankful. So that started this virtuous cycle where people started to like Advent better because Advent customer support had, you know, good, smart people who were really trained and could, 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 could really help you. I got a reputation for never making a mistake. Now that's a bad rep reputation to have because of course obviously you're going to in the end. I remember a couple years down I misspelled a word in a help page 
And then everybody was, uh, everybody at Advent was going, oh my God, Steve made a mistake, Steve made a mistake. <laughs> what's, so, what's uh, all coming to? From, well, from the, 1984 the to until, was when you started selling. And so those late 80s, did you see other competitors in the market? Did you have the market to yourself? Uh, how, how, you know, did firms see you as, you know, the short data well, start going, uh, hey, what's, what's going on with these little Advent guys who are losing business? Well, in, in the beginning, our competitors were, all timeshare because the IBM PC was brand new. So there's very few IBM PC based or, you know, we're not just IBM, any PC based product because PCs are a brand new thing. So we're going against the timeshare people and it was very easy to compete against them because they charged way more than us. and didn't offer you a superior uh, experience. It, it was uh, just good luck that I happened to understand portfolio accounting and I understood PCs both at the same time when a historical change is occurring where the right way to do it is PC. So I could just jump right into the breach real early. Uh, but then uh, PC competitors did start showing up, but none of them threatened us. You know, we were, we were generally uh, better than them. So uh, we sort of ran unopposed. How did you add now, features like, to, the, to the software? What, what, how did you decide what features to add and how to expand? I listened to the customers. That was absolutely crucial to my success that I personally took uh, support calls. In fact, I was, the, I was the top of the support pyramid. If a support person couldn't answer a question really well, they'd, they'd hand it off to me. And it's funny because I almost never did what customers asked for. But by listening carefully, I could see the commonality. You know, three different people suggested three different tiers for seemingly three different problems. But I would recognize underneath, really the problem here is, you know, we don't know how to associate you know, A with B or something. And if I could add a mechanism to this new kind of association, it would fix several different problems. But the cure is very seldom what somebody asked for. But uh, so even though I never do what the customers ask for, it's super important that I listen to them. I would not have been able to be nearly as successful if I didn't, didn't listen to the customers. And it was also very important for me to listen to them personally. If somebody else listens to the problem and summarizes it, they're going to have their own little biases and their own little expectations of what's going on or what needs to be done, and it'll destroy information. I, I needed to talk to those customers personally to, to get the subtle clues about what the right thing to do was. And I had a full plate. There's, you know, as our customer base grows, what security types recovering grows. In the beginning, I only did stocks and cash and started doing bonds and started doing futures and started doing options. Uh, and the big change came when we start hiring programmers. And I had trouble getting uh, hired programmers to do what I did. Uh, mm -hmm. Which was what? What do you I, mean doing what you did? What part of that? What well, part of your job? Well, like I would... I would assign, like I have a huge to-do list of things that I would like to code. And, you know, I, it, you know, it would take, it's 10 times more than I can do personally in a reasonable amount of time. So I would assign a task to somebody. I would explain it. I would assign it to them and they go off and write code for a few weeks. And then I find that understanding their code takes maybe like half as much time as it would take me to write it myself. You know, understanding other people's code is not trivial. So I would understand their code. And then I would explain to them why I didn't like it and what I think they should change. 
And so they would go off for another couple of weeks. And then I have to spend this time of understanding their code again. And uh, finally, after about four uh, turnarounds, I would release the code that I still didn't totally like because I think I'm going to discourage them and they're going to quit. You know, we desperately need programmers. And if I scare everyone away by never, you know, always finding their code is not really good enough. And the amount of time I would have spent going over their code and working with them probably adds up to more than if I had just done it myself. So hiring more programmers wasn't improving my productivity, it was dragging it down. Now, this is this is uh, not anything, you know, I'm not proud of this. This is a failing on my part that I didn't know how to uh, manage a programming department and, and work to other people. Anything significant in the world, you have to get a team working on it because, sure. um, you know, one person just doesn't have the bandwidth. So this is a terrible failing on my part. And when I'm describing that, it's with kind of regret. But that was my experience. I had trouble hiring people and getting them to take the load because when other people would start writing code, we'd start having bugs, we'd, heart, we'd start having complaints, and things wouldn't be uh, as good as they were when I did it myself. Finally, I found a Will Levine. He became my right-hand man. He was wonderful. It was a joy to work with him. He was super good. He he was as good as me. He would he would write code and it would be perfect. But finding people like that is hard. You know, you can't just. It was because you know, that find. just wasn't enough. The industry was so new. It was hard to find people. How did you find them? What what did you we use would, to locate people? We would advertise on uh, you know job boards and stuff, and then I would interview people. And it turns out I'm a terrible interviewer. <laughs> what do you a mean? Couple, well. <laughs> People would come in that seemed really good to me, and I'd say, oh, hire that person. They're awesome. And then on the job, it would turn out, they're not so good. Hmm. You know, they're terrible. And then a couple times, there were people that I just hired because were under pressure. Like, I remember somebody who was a forestry major and really didn't have much experience programming and <laughs> didn't seem to be interested in programming. Forestry but I just hired him. Yeah, forestry major, you know, trees, growing sure. trees. So I, get I hired him. I hired him because we were desperate and he turned out to be wonderful. So oh. some of the people that when I interviewed them, I said, and, and, and you know, I don't, I don't feel good about this person. I don't think this person is very good. They would sometimes turn out to be wonderful. And people that I thought were wonderful would sometimes turn out to be terrible. Like they have no, maybe they're really smart, but they don't really care about doing a good job. If nobody's looking, you know, sure. they're not going to go the extra mile to make sure it's right. What did you find? Did you find a, a common theme of the people that worked out? No, I wish I did. I uh, I regret that I'm not really skilled at selling. Selling is an extremely important skill in the world. I wish I had it, but I don't. And being able to pick good people is a, is a wonderful skill, and I wish I had that, but sure. I, I really don't. I can tell if people are smart, and that's a desired trait, but it's not enough. Right. So how about so, uh, 1992 and, and how you – what led up to launching Access? And, and using Microsoft Windows for the first time. Well, the fact that Windows came out and was was popular. So uh, I did not do the, the the Windows user interface stuff. Access was a Windows user interface put on top of my report generator. I mean, the the the, uh, the data store and the report generator and the accounting was exactly the same. The difference was. Uh, adding a Windows interface on top. And surprisingly, that made the code base 10 times bigger. The, the user interface was 10 times more code than, than everything else. 
and, I, and we did hire a bunch of programmers to do the user interface because that was possible to find people and hire people like that. And I was considered much too valuable to use on the user interface. So I had, I had nothing, nothing to do with the user interface really. So, uh, but Advent had to do that to keep up with, uh, keep up with the times and not look old fashioned and frumpy. So we right. got a, got a, got a windows interface. Uh, in the beginning, I hated windows mm -hmm. because I lost, I lost control. The IBM PC, the uh, BIOS was published and the wiring diagram was published. Mm. And if anything went wrong, I could, you know, debug right down to the bottom layer. Allow me to just break in on this thought provoking interview that I'm doing for a word from our sponsors. I want to take a little break from this episode to talk to you about one of my favorite sponsors, the Invest in Others Foundation. Invest in Others is a nonprofit. You can find them at investinothers.org. And they look to raise money and give out awards to charities that are sponsored by financial advisors. So it's financial advisors' uh, favorite charities, charities that they spend a lot of time supporting. So Invest in Others looks to get sponsorships from the industry and funnel that money to advisors' favorite charities. I really like this, this charity uh, and this nonprofit. I think you should take a look at it. Again, investinothers.org. They've got a couple other programs. One is a grants for good program. Uh, again, delivering money to different needy organizations and needy groups. They're also starting a corporate awards program, which is going to be a little bit different, but still within the industry. Uh, another way for financial services, uh, wealth management, corporations to help uh, donate money to people in need. So I really like Invest in Others. I think you should take a look at it. Invest in Others. Let me spell this for you. I-N-V-E-S-T-I-N-O-T-H-E-R-S dot O-R-G. So wait, before you go on, Steve, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I'm, I'm afraid some people who are listening might not. Can we uh, just go through the difference between interrupt? You know, there's a hardware interrupts versus software polling, where it's polling the line for for something versus hardware interrupting it uh, sure the uh the card in the pc that is hooked up to the modem it, it you can uh, the software can ask it is there a character ready for me to take and frequently the the modem will say no because i mean the modem runs much much slower than than the pc so the so the pc will ask the modem is there a character it'll say no and it'll be in a loop where it's asking, you know, every microsecond or something. And after asking 20 times, the modem will say, yes, there's a character here. So then the PC will take the character and then go back, you know, to asking the modem over and over, do you have a character, do you have a character, do you have a character? Uh, Interrupt-driven, the modem, well, not the modem, the, uh, the serial interface card will take characters from the modem on its own. The CPU is not involved. It'll store them up in a buffer. And when the buffer gets about three-quarters full, It'll interrupt the PC. It'll say to the PC, I need service. The PC will then pull all the characters out of that buffer. And then the serial card will go back to collecting characters on its own. So it's much more efficient to uh, use interrupt-driven uh, serial I.O. than polling I.O. Right. So that helps you improve the speed of your modems because back then, everything, all the data you were transmitting had to go over a, a, a modem, right? A phone line. Yeah, well, you know, well, actually, actually a fine distinction that makes the program run faster because actually the data is going to come in at exactly the same rate if you're polling at a high rate 
you'll still get every character as soon as you can. But the trouble is your CPU is wasting all its time in polling loops. The, P, the, the CPU could go away and do other useful things and not load itself sitting there in a polling loop. So that was the benefit. Your CPU was faster. It's like the uh, data download would happen in the background without slowing your computer down at all, as opposed to, oh, if you're going to do a data download, you have to stop everything else, and the computer has to devote itself to the data download. So that, that was the benefit, freeing up the CPU. So how did that improve, how, how did that change the user experience when they were working with Advent, the, those, that early Windows version of Advent, running on a 1200 baud modem? How much better was it when, they, when you switched to the interrupt versus polling? That on its own probably wasn't a huge thing because you know it would take a few minutes, uh, you know, once per day to download download prices and security master changes. So I guess the benefit is they can uh, push their button to have that happen, and then they get their menu back right away, and they can go ahead and do something else. They don't have to just sit there and twiddle their thumbs for a few minutes until the data download is done. So on its own, that wasn't big. However, speed was super important, and it's it's kind of accidental. I had written several portfolio accounting systems back in the days when I was a contract program. I worked for a series of financial firms on a short-term basis. And even though I was not hired to do portfolio accounting, I would typically find out that their portfolio accounting was bad and I couldn't do whatever I was supposed to do until I fixed up their, their portfolio accounting. So, I mean, like if I'm writing a risk assessment program, I need good, okay, what do we own data to do that? Or, and typically when I would write these systems, I would have a bunch of files for everything I calculated. If I calculated a realized gain, I would sort in the realized gain file. If I calculated dividend, I'd sort in the dividend file. If there was a split, I'd sort in the split file. So I have all this calculated data that is actually redundant. If you went back to the original trades, you could deduce all this redundant data, but the thought was that would be really slow. You know, if the program recalculated everything from scratch, every time you ask it anything, it would run dreadfully slow. But the problem with this uh, having redundant data is people enter errors and, you know, they enter trades in error, and then they trade on top of the errors. And then you try to fix the error. It's very hard to get all the redundant data back in sync again. So error correcting was like the bane of my existence. It was so hard after people put in bad data and then traded on top of the bad data, getting all these different files back in sync was always really hard. So uh, one strange thing I do is that I do experimental code. I don't mind the effort of having a theory about if I change the code this way, this is what would happen. And so then I, then I do the code and then see if it's what I thought, because sometimes I learn really great things. So I decided to do this experiment. I'm going to write a version that stores no redundant data. It only stores the original trades. And every time you ask it, any question is going to go back and recalculate from the uh, original trades. And right. my hypothesis was this would make error correcting be a dream. You just get the trades right. Everything's right. You don't have to do anything else. If, you know, a while back you, you know, entered, you know, the number of shares of IBM you bought was wrong. That's fine. Just fix it. And the fact that you've been buying and selling IBM since then, it'll, it'll all be magically fixed. But it'll probably run slow. That was my hypothesis. However, I was shocked that experimental version ran blazing fast. And I'm sort of embarrassed to admit why, because it shows how ignorant I was back in those days. It ran a lot faster because it fetched a lot less disk blocks. The, on the IBM PC, the 
the hard disk was very slow compared to today's uh, hard disk. And the uh, amount of CPU computation is almost irrelevant because what's basically happening is this, the, the computer wants to fetch a disk block. It has to sit there and wait until the disk block shows up. And it's like millions of CPU cycles before that disk block shows up. Then it can do a little burst of calculation. Then it's hung up again waiting for another disk block. By only storing the original trades in a highly compressed format, the amount of data you had to fetch off disk went way down. Even though the amount of computation went up, now I have to you know, net together all the IBM buys and sells to figure out the IBM position. But getting the CPU to do that was virtually free because if the CPU wasn't doing that, it would have just been sitting there doing nothing waiting for the next six block. So I failed to understand that my rate controlling step was how long it takes to fetch a disk block. And so I had not designed the code to minimize the number of disk block fetches because I didn't, I didn't understand that was the, the rate controlling step. But I accidentally found out, holy cow, this, this version here um, runs like the wind and error correction is really easy. By the way, this experiment, this experiment happened uh, before uh, founding Advent Software. And really? that was that was in the back of my mind. That's what we're going to do. We got to get an IBM PC, and I'm going to use my new experimental. Well, in those days, I guess it's confirmed. It's not experimental. I'm going to use this program that only stores the original data, so it's really fast because it minimizes the number of disk block fetches. And error correction is super easy. Just get the original data right. Everything is right. A lot of our competitors use databases. And databases are just way, way slower because your the data that the program needs to fetch is going to be scattered all over the disk. Typically with a database, you know, you'll say, oh, what's the price of IBM on this certain date? It'll fetch one disk block that's got a database index in it to figure out which, which block has the price. Then it'll go fetch a disk block full of a whole bunch of prices, and it'll just take one number out of that disk block it fetched. And, you know, to get the next price, it's got to fetch another disk block. So right. uh, databases are way, way, way slower, and we had no problem running circles around the people that ran off a database, which is what almost everybody did. So mm -hmm. I, I think I missed something. So you're saying you, you did not have a database. What kind of structure did you use to, to store the trades? The, uh, the trades are stored in a, just a, a file where I just thought up the file format myself. Just, they're just uh, flat files? Yeah, they're flat files. They're just, they're just in order in a flat file. So it was and, a kind of a chain of, of, of uh, trades in, in, a, in, a, in a chain? Yes, and it was, and it was, it was actually text. You could edit it with a text editor, which also was very helpful. Making sure your data is all right, it's completely visible. You can, you can look at it, you can print it, you can edit it. But, you know, it would, just, it would be single lines. It would just go, you know, this date, buy IBM, this many shares, this price, this commission, you know, for this portfolio. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, just be, it would be a bunch of lines like that in a, in a flat file. Down the road, different people would sort of stick their nose up in the air and going, oh, my God, a flat file. That's so primitive. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're a caveman programmer. But I would always just, just ace them on speed. So, uh, When did that stop being efficient? Uh, it never did. It never did. I've, some of the code I've written very recently, I... Uh, still use flat files. I like I like flat files. Uh, let me tell a story about Advent Software. The, the board of directors becomes increasingly frustrated that I'm not growing the uh, programming department. The, the company grew like wildfire. So, you know, we have like 30 salespeople, 30 support people, 30 mm -hmm. admin people, and there's what like four programmers. 
Uh, this would be, who knows, you know, 86, 87. I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know the, I don't know the exact year. Right. Oh, no, maybe, maybe it was getting closer to that 1990. I don't, don't trust me on dates. I, uh, it's weird. I remember the sequence of things, but, mm-hmm. uh, I have to think a while to pin an exact date. Was it before or after Axis was launched? Oh, totally. After Axis was launched. Now, I wanted to write a second version, like, after one year. I learned a whole lot, and I wanted to write another version. But I, because I couldn't hire people that could replace me, mm-hmm. I was never able to get free to write another version. And see, a, a landmark thing happened. I'm doing accounting. I've become an accountant. So I got some accounting books. And I learned about double entry bookkeeping and I, I didn't know it. I had no idea what a debit and credit was, but I learned about double entry bookkeeping. And I said, Oh my gosh, this is an incredible invention. Mm-hmm. I want to write a portfolio accounting system. That's a general ledger and uses double, the transactions are any collection of debits and credits that balance. I'm going to use double entry bookkeeping. That's so wonderful. And I also learned about being bi-temporal where you have a good audit trail because even though you entered bad data, you don't erase it. You put a new record in saying on this date, our opinion of that data changed, but we still have the record of the old data. So if you want to compare, uh, you know, report from last month to this month, we can always clearly explain the difference by being bitemporal. So I started having all sorts of ideas about a super system that was a general ledger and bitemporal, but I couldn't write it for, for years. Uh, finally, when I got the freedom to write that new super version, that was Geneva. That was Edmund Geneva. Uh-huh. And that came out but, in 97. Uh, I think it was out 94-ish, although limited. Goldman Sachs was uh, like a joint development partner and funded part of the development cost. But, that, you know, they're the only ones using it. So I guess the general market would not have, not have heard of it. But I, uh, at that point in time, the board of directors hired some new guy who will remain nameless because I'm not going to say uh, purely kind things to, to, to take over the programming effort. And he thought everything could be done with this product called Power Builder. Oh, I remember Power Builder. Sure. The premise was you don't really need programmers. People with domain expertise can just describe what they need and the code will be written automatically. Every now and then the, the hopes of like artificial intelligence or a fifth generation language, you know, people would get all optimistic about it. And then you know, it wouldn't work out, and you know. But then a few years later, they get all. So anyway, this is right at that point in time. There was a burst of optimism. Computer languages have been getting better and better and better. Maybe Power Builder will uh, free us from uh, needing to hire programmers to do anything. So this guy was super gung ho on Power Builder, and he hired a whole bunch of people, and they're going to do everything on Power Builder, and they're going to have this big evaluation contest to see if they should go with my early Geneva code or they should go with Power Builder. Hmm. And uh, I remember they had they ran on a database. You had to. Power, Build, Power Builder was really right. uh, a, a machine for querying a database. So they were having terrible problems with speed. They knew that they couldn't send people a new version that ran 100 times slower than what they were used to. You'd get such customer pushback. You know, that would never work. So they're switching database vendors right and left and ditching to the database People, you know, send your experts out here, show us how to denormalize the database. But they just couldn't get anywhere near the speed. Uh, finally, they had the promised dramatic technical evaluation to decide which code base to go forward with. And uh, I was 
I, I remember exactly. I ran 76 times faster than them. And I was producing these beautifully formatted PDF reports, you know, proportionally spaced fonts and everything and, and doing all the calculations. They were just trying to pull the trades out of the database and then throwing them away. They didn't have the accounting code yet. They didn't have reporting code yet. And they're running way slower than me. So they're way behind. So I was thinking, surely I'm going to win this technical evaluation. And then I was, I was absolutely astonished to find out the board of directors was, no, we're going to go forward with the other code base. And then I realized that really this whole pretense of a te technical evaluation was just like trying to be kind to me, you know, instead of telling me, uh, we don't trust your, you know, you to lead us forward. We're picking this new guy to lead us forward. It was all a pretense. It was preordained. So anyway, uh, I sold my stake in Advent software a little while after that because I thought uh, Advent software is going to fail. My whole net worth is tied up in a company that's just gone insane and gone off the rails because I knew Power Builder could not do some of the things that had to be done. And, you know, it was mm -hmm. never going to work. Right. And also, I was way overworked because I couldn't find people to delegate to. I'm just... Who knows? I'm working 60 hours a week, and I'd been doing that for years, and I was burnt out, and it wasn't fun. It's strange. Advent software was so fun for me for a bunch of years. I loved it. The, you know, the, one of the most glorious experiences of my life. But towards the end, it got to be uh, discouraging and depressing and just slogging through all sorts of stuff. And, you know, I didn't like it, and I had to get away for my, for my emotional health. So I sold my stake in Advent software. And... Uh, after I left the oh, wait, power so builder before what in 1993. Yeah. yeah, about then. After I left, the uh, power builder project uh, collapsed. I wasn't there, but you know, I still have friends at Edmund, so I'm talking to my friends at Edmund, and they tell me that they started calling it Power Blunder instead of <laughs> Power Builder. Yeah, they, they called it Power Blunder, and. Uh, Management actually wanted to race my computer directory when I left, and my my uh, my files on the on the the file server, the central file server, serves the whole network because they thought, okay, my code's useless. But some of my programming friends had saved my Geneva prototype, thinking this may be necessary someday. Mm -hmm. So, um, Power Builder uh, failed. The guy in charge of that, the typical letter about he's decided to you know go spend more time with his family. And they resurrected my Geneva code and commercialized it, but without me. Hmm. So uh, I wrote the first version of Geneva, but I was, you know, burnt out on Advent and gone from Advent before the actual commercial release of Geneva. Wow. So they used your, your initial code that was on your computer, which they didn't want to use at first, when they realized Power Builder collapsed. They resurrected your code and launched Geneva from that. Uh, correct. And so my ideas are all there. It, it, the, the general ledger idea, the uh, bitemporal idea, and uh, I also found a much better way to do bonds. I could, because it's object-oriented programming, I could play with the V pointer. I know I'm going to lose all the non-technical people here, but <laughs> in object-oriented programming, you have, you have methods. So I have a, I have a, a class that represents a bond, but I want the bond to have different personalities. Bond that we have purchased, but it hasn't settled yet, has to have price risk, but it's there's no accrued interest. After we settle it, now we have price risk and accrued interest. 
Then when we sell it, but the sell hasn't settled, the price risk goes away, but we, we're still earning interest. So the, a bond has three different personalities depending on where it is on its life cycle. So I had some clever tricks by changing the so-called V-pointer on the class, I could completely change the personality of the bond. And that was really efficient and really fast. But anyway, I had a lot of good ideas like that. And all those ideas are in Geneva. And those ideas came from my uh, my prototype. Right, so what else made Geneva unique besides that it's, it's a GL and it's bi-temporal? Was there anything else about Geneva itself? Well, it, ran, well, it, uh, it was very flexible in terms of what security types it could do that that you could do ad hoc transa transactions with with the chart of accounts you get to make up the chart of accounts yourself mm. well actually i intended to make up the chart of accounts yourself i think when geneva finally went out you couldn't do the chart of accounts they had to back off on some of the ideas that i had because it would just take too long to develop but it was very very flexible and it was an excellent vessel to pour knowledge of security types into because it's, it's it's flexible enough to accept all that knowledge mm -hmm. uh, so uh at that time hedge funds were starting to take off right. and hedge funds typically trade a wide variety of uh financial instruments uh and geneva knew about all those financial instruments you're you're doing all these different kinds of swaps you're doing credit default swaps you're doing currency swaps you're doing swaps that are you know libor versus some index you know and so geneva could do all the things that hedge funds wanted to do because it was flexible enough to do that and the other people typically weren't that flexible so uh geneva struggled for a while but once the hedge fund started liking it it it, it took off sure and they and they could charge really high prices for it oh, so yeah. uh, that was that was a big winner for uh for admin so how did it come to pass that you're away from the company for a little more than 10 years, they bring you back to fix Geneva? Well, actually, unfortunately, not to fix Geneva. I wanted to fix Geneva. And when I, they invited, you know, they, I, I get a letter. In fact, periodically, they called me and said, you know, would you consider working for Advent again? And I always said no, because uh, it just, in the end, been a bad experience. I didn't want to go back. But finally, uh, I said, okay, um, I think I could be really helpful. And I go back and I interview, and all the programming people are so excited to have me back. And they're saying, this is so awesome. We need you. You'll save us. You know, uh, we really need a top designer like you. But as it turns out, what they said doesn't matter. It's what management says. And the CTO of Advents at the time mostly wanted me for maintenance work. I didn't realize that. Uh, they considered Geneva to be a cash cow, and they don't want to take a risk with it. You know, it's, it's making good money, and if I come in and it's suggesting low-level rewrites and fix foundational errors, they think, why would we do that? We have this cash cow that's very risky, rewriting stuff. You rewrite stuff, sure, we have problems, but if we rewrite it, we'll just have new problems, and, you know, we'll have no new features for, you know, 18 months or something. So after a while, uh, it became apparent that um, the only thing that was going to happen at Advent on my second stint was uh, maintenance coding. And I'm bad at maintenance coding, and I found maintenance coding to be very frustrating because you couldn't reason about what was going to happen if you changed the code. Uh, for so many years, maintenance coders, when there's a problem, they, they patch on top. They don't find the underlying problem. You know, if dividends paid in Japanese yen on a Tuesday or 1% high, 
So just put an if statement in there going, okay, if it's Tuesday and it's automated in yen, you know, take 1% off and, you know, call the problem fixed. And so you, you accumulate a big mass of those patches that don't really figure out the underlying problem. It forces everybody to function like that. People that want to actually reason about how the code works can't. You just get sucked into a tar pit. So I was actually bad at maintenance coding and didn't enjoy it. Moved on from my second stint at Advent. Gotcha. So after that, you then started your own company called Strand Theory, where you build your own portfolio accounting system, So, which was called SUMA or SUMA. Yeah, SUMA. Yeah, SUMA after SUMA Arithmetica. Yeah, the first published description of double-entry uh, bookkeeping was a book by uh, written in Venice in 1496. It was called Summa Arithmetica Proportionality, Proportionality, or something. I know it's got a big, long you know, Italian name, but it started out Summa. So it was a homage to that first published description of double-entry bookkeeping. Uh, that was fun, and the software was wonderful, but I ran into a sort of a brick wall. It, it, ha it had to be sold to a fairly large financial institution because I personally couldn't finish it. A credible portfolio accounting system is going to take, you know, who knows, 20, 30 man years of coding. And I can't do 20, 30 man years myself in a, in a reasonable time frame. So I did a whole lot of really interesting prototypes, and several large financial firms were very, very fascinated by my code and very, very interested in it. I had internal champions that want to buy it. But big institutions don't want to buy code that one guy wrote in his spare bedroom. Uh, if there's no team behind it, sure. they're very, very nervous. So I could be hit by a bus yeah, and the software could not work out. In fact, I think uh, as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley thing, they even are legally required to only do business with counterparties that have a certain heft and approval and you know ISO rating. I mean, I don't know what it is, but it's possibly even legally wrong for a big... Uh, brokerage firm or hedge fund to uh, base a big piece of their business on something that one guy wrote in his bedroom. So uh, I told my wife it would take me two years to write SUMA and then like two years to sell it. It took three years to write it and then like for four years still hadn't sold it. So I realized I have to sell to a software company that has a big enough headcount and a big enough clout to uh, be a credible counterparty for the large financial institutions. So in the end, that's what I did. How did that work out? Well, there was a slow period at first, but now I think SUMA is starting to get get traction and starting to to, to build up. The, uh, the software company I, I sold to was called SUMA FT, for SUMA Financial Technology. Mm -hmm. They're sort of off the radar now, but um, they are starting to get uh, they're starting to get traction. Also, they uh, combined it with a bunch of other software. My, I had a peer portfolio accounting engine. Typically, people want a full solution. You know, we want we want a trading system. We want risk assessment system. We want performance attribution. We want watch sales. I mean, they want all sorts of things. So, by combining it with a broader spectrum of software, promising a full solution, and promising a big team that can back it up, I think that'll be a winning uh, market formula. And that was about that was about six years of time. Uh, yes, Strand Three was a good six years of time. I stressed the heck out of my wife by uh, hmm. not getting paid for six years. Right. And uh, but then, you know, but then I it, it, it worked out in the end. It worked out in the end. But it was uh, the entrepreneurial route can be 
kind of stressful. Oh, it certainly can. So what are you doing now? I'm actually dealing with a couple different people doing contract work and deciding who to go forward with. And I, I don't want to talk about that because I don't want to, you know, publicize chickens that aren't hatched or oh, sure. uh, publish, pu- publicize doing contract work that, now? That, that isn't finalized. That's right. I'm doing contract work and I have a pretty clear vision of uh, where I want to go, but it's uh, not ready for public, uh, public discussing yet. One thing is I don't want to retire. I retired for 10 years after I sold Advent Software in, I don't know, was it 93 or something like that? Um, I didn't have to work. I, I, I mean, I wasn't wealthy like, you know, Ferraris and yachts, but um, from investments, I can earn a professional level salary. So I didn't have to work. So for about 10 years, I didn't work. And after a while, I didn't like it. I, did, I didn't like being retired. Uh, I never go anywhere. I never do anything. I never meet anybody. I'm just sort of put out to pasture. So nowadays, I have the point of view as I get older, I want to reduce my hours and have more flexibility to travel, but I don't want to just go cold turkey and retire. I mean, I would program all the time, even if I'm not paid to do it. That's what I love. That's what I'm good at. Um, I think a lot of people have a job that they don't like, and of course, they're eager to retire the first second they can. But if you're actually getting paid to do what you love, uh, you know, you don't want you don't want to retire. So I, I don't want to retire now. And there's no reason why you should. It's a whole new world. You can you can keep working and keep programming and keep coming up with new ideas and maybe start something else. That's right. That's right. So I'm uh, excited about what the possibilities are going forward, and uh, we will, we will see. I'll have to do another podcast in ten years to right. cover the next cover the next ten years. <laughs> Hopefully, I'll still be doing podcasts. Then I'll look you up. Steve, it's been really, okay. really a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm, I'm, it was uh, I, I could really keep going on and diving in depth, but it's I think you really provided a lot of information that I've never knew. I never knew before. And I've been in the industry for a long time. Uh, I really want to thank you for, for sharing all this. My pleasure. Uh, I hope the stories uh, interest new people and you know, maybe, maybe helps people. I hope so as well. It's good talking to you. Thanks so much, Steve. Hey everyone. It's Craig again. Just a few quick items before we go. If you like this episode, please give it a five-star review on iTunes. I would very much appreciate it. And remember to check out the show notes for links to everything we talked about on this episode. For more information on wealth management technology, you can read my Wealth Management Today blog at wmtoday.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again next week. 